Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag, taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra-sharp cheddar cheese. We know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook Cheddar, Extraordinary Dairy. Hey, this is Dore, and welcome to Pots Other People. In this episode, we are celebrating Juneteenth. Shout out to Juneteenth. Uh, I had off on Friday. A lot of people had off on Monday. But it was a lot of beautiful things happening over the weekend. I went to an amazing a party in the park. Shout out to Juneteenth. And this week, it's me, Diara, Kaya, and Miles, as usual, talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. The news that you should have heard of about race, justice, and equity, but didn't make national headlines. And we talk about that here. And then I sit down with an old friend and new author, David Dennis Jr., to talk about his new book, The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of the Freedom Ride. We talk about the intergenerational struggle for Black liberation and the impact it's had on him, his family. We learn about the Freedom Rides, all, all these things. And I've known David for a while, but this book is incredible, wonderfully well-written. You'll learn a lot. And I can't wait to hear our conversation. Here we go. Uh, my advice for this week is to think about the difference between an audience and a community. That an audience we're often talking to, it's easy to have an audience, but we build communities. And I've heard people lament this idea that like, you know, everything's individualistic these days and people aren't sort of being as thoughtful about being in community with each other as they normally are. And here's the thing is remember that community is built. Community doesn't just emerge, community is built. And we need to remember that as we do this work, that we build community, rituals, through practices, through conversations, through proximity, uh, but we build community. It doesn't just emerge. Let's go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. We are coming with laughter before we even push record on this because people have been in the streets, people have been enjoying life, and we are entitled and we are deserving. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I am Miles E. Johnson. You can find me at Feral Rapture on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Dre, at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Amazing. Well, it's just lovely to be with everyone this afternoon. Uh, it is. Ka- Kai and DeRay are struggling a little bit, but it's okay. We're all here. <laughs> they can't be like we me. all were doing a little pre-Juneteenth celebration, so it yes, will it will continue. Up. It will continue. The turn up. It's Juneteenth. It's Pride. It's uh, Black Music History Month. That's that's a lot yes, of that's a lot of liquor. The it's the be- it's the a- beginning of summer. That's a lot of that's a lot of two steps in liquor, child. Y'all better find some liver detox supplements. Okay, yeah, some IV. Uh, dandelion tea. Dandelion is that, tea is helps that to detox the liver. Okay. So these are the things that you learn okay, over the years. That sounds like this tastes good with bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try that. <laughs> oh my god. Y'all, there's so much happening this week. Like so much happening this week. We had 
The shout out to the Golden State Warriors for their win in the NBA Finals. Um, but also shout out to the Boston Celtics, who uh, a year ago nobody was even thinking about. And Ime Udoka, the Nia's man, uh, then took his team oh, in his first year right. of coaching straight to the finals. So. At all because of and they went to game six. Man. And so that's not slouchy at all. At all. Um and my uh, my favorite thing that happened this week is the elephant in India who uh, first killed a lady. And let me be very clear. I don't take joy in anybody's death. But this this situation made me pause and Hold think. Um, but the elephant trampled the woman and then apparently went off on her merry way. They were having a funeral for the woman. And the elephant came back and picked this lady up and... I guess had some more to do with that her. That is gangster. That's cr- <laughs> like wild. That's wild. <sighs> That's that like Frank Lucas in American Gangster was softer. <laughs> Not that like- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, the fact that the elephant came back and destroyed the house later that night is just so epic you're like i don't know what this woman did but the elephant did not forget at all so what i heard on some show on tv was that um the woman would throw rocks at the elephant to distract the mother elephant so that poachers could go take her babies and so i think when somebody steals your babies then all bets are off um all bets are off and i think that she you know, I think she was, yeah, she's pissed off, clearly. Yeah, and and, and the, the interesting thing about it, too, is that the woman passed away and the elephant said, just because you are dead does not mean our fight is over. I st- like, I still have <laughs> things to do. And I like the And mm. yeah, ruthless. Mm. Well, and I mean, I think a lot about all of these people in, who are visiting these national parks over the summer and trying to take selfies with moose and bison and things and then they get trampled listen we need to obey the laws of nature honey we need to stop playing around with mother nature and take our rightful place we need to stop playing around with each other because that elephant ain't the only person or is not the only creature who will not forget there's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of things out here and i felt like this was a lovely metaphor for how we just need to be thinking about how we comport ourselves definitely definitely also known as Everybody mind their business. <laughs> listen, listen, stay, 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 stay strapped. <laughs> and and we're and we're out here in these Times Square streets. That's right. That's right. So y'all, heads up for anyone listening who's in New York. You might have already seen it. So Pod Save the People is on a Times Square billboard. And we're happy to be featured in this Amazon music ad. You know, it's all, it's about Juneteenth. So shout out. Thank you for that. And, you know, you can catch new episodes of this podcast on Amazon music. So shout out. We're excited to be on in New York Times on the billboard. Whoop, whoop. We made it, Mom. Listen, throw your Mary Tyler Moore hat up in the sky. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And if y'all see it, take a picture, tag us on Twitter. You know, we'll get back at you. Appreciate y'all. I think I'm going to jump in with the first news. Listen, I love 
how Beyonce comes. I'm not even going to try to build up to the news. I just love how Beyonce comes. It just shifts priorities in public conversation, and it's fascinating because we were we cared about multiple different things the day before yesterday. And now Beyonce is saying, listen, July 29th, I'm coming. So I don't know what you got to do. I don't know who you got to who you got to rob. I don't know what you I don't know what you got to say for, but I'm coming and I'm dropping new music. Beyonce released on her Instagram that she is releasing a new album by the name of Renaissance. Um it also says Act 1, which makes you think that it's going to be Act Two, three, four, da, da 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 da. So this is just the first act in an era of uh, acts. Like shout out to Beyonce and Shakespeare um, for obviously just giving us lots and lots and lots of content. She came up with a box with a whole bunch of um. She like have <laughs> she has like this box where it's like basically this like merchandise box that nobody knows what's in it. Um, you can assume that it's at least going to be a t-shirt and a CD. I bought all four because I can't take any risk. I'm so, so deeply excited. And then yesterday she released these beautiful photos with um, British Vogue that were just captivating and Afrofuturist, but disco glam. And Edward, who's the editor of British Vogue, starts talking about how he got to hear the album and how it's soaring vocals and people are thinking that it's going to have house and Vogue and dance elements to it. And I'm just beyond excited. I'm beyond excited. How do you all feel? Are are, are y'all obsessed with Beyonce? Or is that, it's like, where are we at on the Beyonce obsession meter collectively? <laughs> and say it publicly, say it loudly, and put your addresses out. <laughs> if you <laughs> if you don't agree, just go ahead and Listen, your I'm not fooling with the beehive in public. That's not what I'm about to do. Mm. Mm. Shoot, say any negative girl. comments, I will keep to my own self. Okay? <laughs> hmm. I love my life out here. Hmm. No, but I'm excited. I'm always excited for Beyonce. And I think I'm I think the the thing that Beyonce has done that I was most proud and happy about, thrilled about, overjoyed about was homecoming. So I don't I mm-hmm. mean, I just don't know if anything could ever top that ever. And so because of that, I think always excited to see what she and her team come up with because it's always so beautiful so intentional so thoughtful miles is is there going to be like videos that accompany the it's is it like a whole movie thing that she's coming out with or we just know it's the album i absolutely love that you would assume that i know anything that's going on with beyonce (laughs) (laughs) i'm not able to give you any more information than what the public knows i have no idea even when i try to pull cards everybody um a lot of people know i have a spiritual practice where i use tarot and mediumships the ghosts won't tell me the ancestors won't tell me um her pr is strong on the other side too and I have no clue what is actually going to be going on. But I assume because Beyonce seems to be one of the uh, one of uh, artists in the vein of a Michael Jackson, right? So an artist that really understands the intersection of music performance and visuals and how that can create experience. I would assume that in some way she would create something that is not just pressing play on music, but... I don't know how that's going to look like because I think that she's also somebody who wants to push the envelope in. I would think, just from what, what I've been seeing going on around, this is just me predicting, there's been a lot of um, a lot of people exploring 
immersive experiences and 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 doing things that are um interactive and that are really pushing technology and music so i would think that she would employ that and i think that if she is going to do something with house music and vogue why not do it with this and why not um you know why not start like why not start that that journey um here how about you auntie kaya how's your feelings about beyonce auntie kaya who lives on two three four (laughs) (laughs) on a scale of one to ten let's say i would say i'm probably a strong nine right i'm not like totally sold out, but I'm mostly sold out. Um, First of all, I just think that her, you know, her music is absolutely amazing. And every time I think, you know, just when I think, oh, well, she's peaked, right? She takes us to a whole different dimension. And that to me is, you know, I put her in the ranks of Michael Jackson and Prince and like really iconic musicians. Um, but even more than that, and you you opened your thing with this Miles, right? Like she shifts conversation. She shifts perspective. She makes us focus on things that, you know, we have not been thinking about and uh, create space for us to think about things in new ways. Um, I appreciate her transparency, right? Lemonade was a whole situation for me, right? And and that transparency allows other people to explore the fullness of who they are. And I think the thing that I like most about her, and and the guy said it in the article, is like she does this stuff with a a real clear sense of humility, right? Like the ego that you would expect doesn't seem to be there. And DeRay, you, I mean, you know a lot more about this than any of us. Um, but I, I just really appreciate. I think you know when people have platforms. How you show up really matters because it it allows and enable uh, enables other people give per, gives permission to other people to show up, and I think she shows up so responsibly as a black woman, so uh, liberatorily, which is probably not a, a whole word, but like I mean, I she is what we need at at this moment, right? Um, so I'm super excited about it. I'll say, um, you know, one of the things that I love about who she is as an artist is that she really does live in her own world in all the best ways like who else could sell a box set with cds in it nobody knows what is in it haven't seen a picture and people are like i'm buying it my sister literally she facetimed me to be like i found my cd player for whatever beyonce sent into the house and you're like i love it (laughs) and you know, if it's a commentary on people need to slow down and listen to music and appreciate it again and not just play on the spot. Like, I love that you're like, you know what? I, I, I could see her being like, I brought on my CDs and other people should have their CDs too. And you're like, I love it. You know, like, who can do that? I, I also love, and this, this sort of got lost in the mix of the announcement, is that for the first time, you can sign up for text alerts from Beyonce. And I'm really interested to see you know, wait, wait where like, do we do that at? Tell me, tell me, where are we doing that? Beyonce.com. I know they need to like, it's sort of hidden, but it's there. Like they've never had that. Like, on the website before it used to be, you could just join the mailing list, but they actually have like a text thing now. And I, and I, I want to believe that this is the beginning of Beyonce having a more direct relationship between the hive and her. That's not just like PR announcements. Like what would it look like if, if only the hive got a text before, a press release went out or like a post went out, like those sort of things. I, 
and I feel like, uh, like Miles said, that there will be, I- I'm hoping that there will be like a increased sort of like use of technology and exploring frontiers and that sort of stuff. Also, you know, Cardi said this best. People just want shake your booty music, right? Like people are like, like this Come has been on. such a crazy couple of years and I'm excited hopefully for her to put out music that people can just like jam to and uh, you know, somebody, I don't know who somebody was critiquing recently, but they were like, you know, do you hear that person's music in the, in the club? And it's like, you know who you hear every night? You hear Beyonce. And I'm excited to keep hearing her. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting. And I do hope that like, there's, I'm just, I'm just so interested in where she's going to go because of Lemonade, because of Homecoming, because of Black is King. I'm interested to see where she's going to go. And I'm hoping that she's able to keep kind of like that depth in 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 in, in avant-garde African thing that she was able to like kind of like capture and still have fun because I do think that we're kind of like you know I saw somebody saying like we don't need no more um we shall overcome music and I can't agree with that <laughs> but I'm I'm oh, but I'm interested in like oh how do we like how do you balance it and not be not be not ignore what's going on in the world, but choosing to look at it and transcend it in fantasy and in dance and in music. I think those are two different things. Mm, well, while Beyonce is doing her thing, corporate America is continuing to be corporate America. Um, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office has just opened an investigation into Wells Fargo's hiring practices after allegations from insiders at Wells Fargo um, alleged that the company held fake job interviews for women and people of color to make it look like they were, you know, diversifying their hiring. Um, This is, I mean, first of all, it's just, it is horrible, but it is also not surprising but like we could have anticipated this, right? So post George Floyd, we saw all of these companies and organizations setting goals around diversity in terms of hiring and making all kinds of commitments. Um, we did a story months ago about how many of the financial commitments that were made hadn't been executed on and the, I don't know, billions of dollars that was supposed to be allocated to um, organizations and and causes to support people of color had not actually had hadn't been spent. We also talked in that article about how many the the biggest uh, commitors were banks like Wells Fargo and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, but that the way they set up their commitments actually were about benefiting their business, not not just. Uh, doing good and right to people of color. And here we have Wells Fargo, who has already had a ton of bad press for discriminations in lending, um, predatory lending during the housing crisis and all of this other stuff. Now get this new bad news, uh, which says that, you know, they have um, essentially interviewed people just to be able to say, yeah, we had a diverse slate of candidates. You know how this works, right? Employers start with good intent and they say, you know, you can't just hire your friends or people who come through your networks. You've got to make sure that at least 50% of your hiring slate includes candidates who are people of color or women. And people have not done that is the allegation. 
Um, they, in fact, they hired the people, they made commitments to people. And then even after the job was committed, went back and, and hired and, and interviewed women and people of color who didn't have a chance of getting the job because the job was already promised to somebody else. And so one of the senior leaders at Wells Fargo who blew the whistle on this practice um, is actually suing the company around this. Um, and Wells Fargo literally in August of 2020 paid out an $8 million settlement um, because of discrimination um, to over 30,000 Black uh, loan seekers and discrimination um, in how they do home loans. So, you know, you would think that they might not want to futz around with this kind of thing. They have said that um, their diverse slate guidelines have been put on hold while a company conducts a review to make sure that hiring understand hired hiring managers understand how to implement this policy. But at the end of the day, we all know what it is, right? People hire who they want to hire. They hire their friends. They hire their cousins. They hire their, you know, whatever, their cousins' friends. And they don't seek out diverse candidates. And just because you put... Um, guidelines in place or metrics in place, because they will tell you that there are more, you know, diverse candidates that they've hired in the last two years or that they are the largest lender to Blacks, you know, seeking home ownership loans. All of that doesn't matter if, you know, if your intent is not real. And so I think this is just a reminder that no matter what policy changes people put in place, there are ways to get around them. And we have to be vigilant on calling these companies out when we see stupid stuff like this happening. My first thought was, um, does anybody have an elephant? I can't... (laughs) 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 Um, It's just... It was just horrendous. Like it's it's really horrendous. And I think the thing the the thing that will always get me about these systemic these systemic travesties is that it's just not new. We're just learning about this one that's in front of our face. This one is becoming the the one. But Wells Fargo is um, not special. This is happening all the time. But then somebody decided to take the patience to call it out and to litigate and to do an expose. And that's how come we're talking about this one and it would just be short-sighted to make it to make this situation special about Wells Fargo and that oh look at this thing that Wells Fargo was doing that was under that was uh so horrendous and was it was hurting black people and keeping black people from advancing their business it's like oh this is that's business in America this for whatever reason this one is getting spotlighted but this is a common practice throughout American corporations and business and it's helping keep black people systemically uh I don't want to say impoverished but I do want to say it's keeping black people gatekeeped out of a certain type of like class realization that's my opinion until we get the elephant child so part of my job for a long time was vetting and, and, and research. And so in politics, so I vetted a lot of banks. And Wells Fargo was always the worst bank. Like in, in addition to, <laughs> first of all, you discriminate against 30,000 people. Like to me, that's criminal. And this needs to be, we need an elephant. Second hmm. of all, the other thing that Wells Fargo do, has been doing for decades is money laundering for cartels and other criminal activity, like millions and millions of dollars. So when you, yeah, oh yeah, 
Wells Fargo. Bless. And then when you start thinking about the predatory lending practices in Wells Fargo and what happened in 2008, the mortgage crisis, like Wells Fargo is always the worst of the worst of the worst. And all these banks, you know, you can you can find negative hits on all of these banks. But for some reason, Wells Fargo is like the cowboy of the banks and continually finding ways to like thwart regulation systems, et cetera. Um, so I'm not surprised by this news at all. I mean, my little brother just did like, cause he's a, a gob, cute black golfer. He just did a video for Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo didn't give him a cent. I said, did they, did I not see any paperwork before you did this video for this big ass bank and nobody, it, it, come on. So all that to say, I'm not surprised. You know, Miles, as usual, right about this elephant. And, you know, we'll we'll see what announcement comes out after this. But I feel like Wells Fargo always messes up and then makes some announcement about they're gonna, how they're going to fix it. But in this, you know, it, it seems like that was the, the sequence of events here. And except in the fixing it, they were trying to cheat the fix. So we'll see what they come up with. I looked at their board of directors. You can imagine what that looks like. Not surprised. Also, the thing that's so interesting about this is that uh, Wells Fargo is big enough and there's enough talent out there that there are a lot of jobs that they need to hire for. So to go out of your way to make fake interviews is really just like next level racist. You know, like you're just like, that is, you guys are just going out of your way to not put a bit here. This is not like there were three positions in the total company and, you know, there were these two people, your cousins, and you're trying to keep your cousins out. It's like, this is a huge, this is a huge enterprise. So I'm, I'm fascinated about that. But the second thing um, is I can see how this conversation goes. I can see somebody being like, I think they're doing fake interviews. And people being like, that's really dramatic. And then it's like, no, I think they're doing fake interviews. And then people being like, that's really, no, that doesn't happen. Like, you sound like a conspiracy theorist with the way when we say everything goes back to race, we often sound like we're like, it's hyperbole and we, you know, are too sensitive. And, and then you're like, no, no, huge global company is doing fake interviews to get around having to not be racist. And I'm always interested in like the multiple things where somebody flagged it, somebody called it, but it was like, well, that's so crazy. It couldn't possibly be true. And often, if not always, it is true. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. My news this week is the New York Times review. It's actually a New York Times critic's pick of Fat Ham. But I'm going to give y'all my review, and then you can go on and read the New York Times because (laughs) I had the pleasure of seeing this play on Tuesday, and I've just been thinking and dreaming about it every day since then. It is a production 
the playwright is Jamesy James, and the and the 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 first production I saw of his was actually at National Black Theater, and I forget, of course, forget the name of it, but it was about it it, it was about all of these black men that had been you know m- murdered by the police, but it was really about what what happened once they died and Dre, I think you saw this one too once they died and kind of ascended into that space between death and heaven like almost purgatory and the and the reflection and the realizations that they all had collectively during this time I mean it was a, it was so brilliantly done and so here he comes again with fat ham which is basically a queer black take on hamlet it was anything but tragic, so I wouldn't call this, you know, a typical Shakespeare tragedy. It was joyful. It was dynamic. It was blackety black, black, black. Sometimes I looked around the room and I was like, mm, I don't know if we got enough black people in here for this blackness, but that's another, that's a whole conversation around theater in general. Um, but it just was, it was incredible. And I think it's definitely going to go to Broadway. And so... The backstory of this production is it's it's still National Black Theater and shout out to Sade Lithkoth and Jonathan McQuarrie because again they are brilliant and have brought this play to the to the public while National Black Theater is under construction. It's due to open again, y'all, um, in 2024, I believe. Um, but if you all don't know, please get to know the National Black Theater. It was started by Dr. Barbara Barbara Tier. Years ago, this sister bought a block in Harlem, um, and that that land is still owned today by her daughter Sade and, and her brother Michael, and they are now building, rebuilding National Black Theater, and it's going to have some other cool additions as well. I say all that to say, one, we all should be supporting National Black Theater. Part of how you can do that is come to New York and go see Fat Ham at the Public. It's just been extended a third time to July 17th, I think. Um but yeah, I was so excited to see it, so excited to share it with y'all um, and check it out. So I, had a, I, I saw it um, and also shout out to National Black Theater in Harlem. Shout out to Sade, shout out to Jonathan. Incredible uh, people helping to, to lead the theater and to find incredible talent to elevate it. Fat Ham won the Pulitzer as it should have. Um, and I remember getting invited to go and, you know, Shakespeare is always tough because there are a lot of interpretations of Shakespeare that you're like, yeah is it very good right or they're like we're gonna bring shakespeare to the present and you're like mm, uh, it, it doesn't land that ham landed it did it like they had a big goal and they met it like they really did figure out how to make it queer and people of color black and brown and and shakespeare and hamlet and you're like you know what you did this it was one of the few things that i've seen recently where I just was very, very impressed. I also just saw Strange Loop on Broadway, another play that deals with issues of identity uh, and race and like big, big, big goal and big task. And they actually land it. And you're like, whew, I'll tell you, I feel like I have gone to every thing that artistically could be done about race and equity recently especially since the protest started and so few of them actually land it a lot of them try a lot of them touch it 
uh, these two landed. Fedham landed it. The the thing I was going to add too, and I was and I was thinking about that is uh, something <laughs> something that Slay Play did right, and it was not necessarily inside of the actual writing, acting, or you know story. But I think there was a concerted effort to get black people into the theater. And there were, I remember there was like blackout nights. There were all these different um, uh, just initiatives to make sure that people who do not necessarily get to go see theater get to see it. And um, I hope that between Strange Loop and Fat Ham, that there is, um, I, and I'm, I'm not sure, maybe this does exist, maybe they are doing this, but I hope there are initiatives to make sure that the people who this these stories are reflecting and talking about and the community that um, it's, it's sourcing from is also there to be able to experience it because I think that's important too. And I think that changes how the culture views it, you know, and, 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 and where those conversations uh who ends up having conversations about it and how people feel about have feel about those um, items of culture when you're out actually able to participate in it and go see it. Um, I am excited to go check this out because um, I am like totally obsessed with us reinterpreting classic things. Um, when, you know, first of all, I just fundamentally believe, and you can fight me on this, but like Black people create culture, like we create fashion, music, like everything that people do around here, art, da da da, has significant influence, um, if not whole cloth borrowing or something from us. And that's one of the reasons why. I love being black. Um, but when we remix other people's stuff, y'all, it is a whole situation to behold. And so I'm excited about Fat Ham for that matter. Um, I went to um I went this week to the Kennedy Center. Um, they have a retrospective called Reframing the Narrative on Black Ballet. And they have uh, this the Dance Theater of Harlem. It's about five different ballet companies who have come together to reinterpret ballet. And like, you know, these ladies, first of all, uh, women and men, for sure, um, some classical ballet pieces, but lots of other like stuff that is, is ballet to our music with our environments and our culture and whatnot. And it was riveting, absolutely riveting. In fact, um, even with the classical ballet, where women are in, you know, more traditional garb, tutus and stuff, they're not, you know, bubblegum pink tutus because that don't work with our skin tone. They are champagne blush and burgundy bodices and turbans that look like the Queen of Sheba, honey. They were doing the whole black ballet thing in ways that made me absolutely giddy. So I love it when we take classics and do them our way on our own terms. Um, in fact, I think for sure there are so many, like I think Shakespeare is unapproachable for many people. In fact, at my company, we partnered with the Folger Shakespeare Library, um, which is the preeminent Shakespearean institution in the United States to create a course called Black Shakespeare, where we look at five Shakespearean plays through the lens of African or African-American themes, people, issues that are important to us. And we are turning young people onto Shakespeare in ways that they have never been engaged with Shakespeare before because they see themselves in 
in in the work. And so I'm excited about how Fat Ham and Black Ballet and these kinds of things make things more accessible to people in our community. So uh, my news is about Uvalde, the, uh, the town in Texas where the most recent national story around a mass shooting happened. As you remember, uh, a shooter walked into an elementary school and killed a classroom of fourth graders while the police watched. Uh, almost all of the major newspapers in Texas have been filing FOIA requests demanding that a host of documents be made public. That the recordings uh, from dispatch, that all of the police reports, that the body camera footage, that all of it gets released. And what we learned uh, in the past couple of days is that the police have actually hired private attorneys and law firms to represent them to prevent the release of any of these documents, namely the body camera footage. And what they have said, uh, or what sources have said, is that uh, the footage would be embarrassing, that it would, you know, potentially cause ill repute of the police department. And I'm so interested in this because in moment, you know, we, we've been talking about the police and transparency and all this stuff for a while. And to think of such a public shooting, such a the public failure of the police, uh, you know, we thought something was wrong when this happened. And every single day you're like more and more like, yep, like either they, the police killed some of the kids or I could see them joking on, on like the dispatch audio like, I really put nothing past what, what happened, given how intensely they are working to cover it up. I read another interview about uh, Uvalde, where a former groundskeeper, like uh, one of the custodians at the school, was like, you know, he's like, the glass on the doors wasn't that thick, right? So he's like, I, you wouldn't be able to punch it through with your hand, but a hammer would, or like, a, you just needed like an object. So this idea that the door was so like so strong that the police chief could not get in without the key. You know, if you've heard the story, the story was that the reason why they didn't go into the room earlier is that they couldn't unlock the door and that they had to wait for another custodian to come with the key, which is why it took them over 40 minutes to enter. But uh, somebody who worked at the school was like, that's just not true. That, that, that the classroom had glass that you could break, that somebody could have broken. And I do think that there are a host of agencies across the country that are also intent on them not releasing this footage because it's no better example of the idea that the police do not protect people than what happens when the police stand in the hallway and listen to a gunman kill a class of fourth graders. Uh, the last thing I'd say is that I feel confident that this will come out somehow. It'll be a whistleblower. It'll be a court case. And the good news in it coming out is that people will see for themselves. And because of all the protests and conversation of late, I think the reporters, and I know those reporters because they covered some of the other police shootings that happened way back in the day. I remember meeting them in 2014 and they were very just pro-police. Like they weren't pro-truth. They were just like whatever the police said they believed. And to see those same reporters now finally get that like something isn't adding up is actually really promising. So I believe we'll get to the bottom of this, but it is fascinating to watch them fight. I'm almost speechless. Like I'm like, I... Wait, can one of y'all go first? Because I actually, I'm a little speechless. 
I mean, I just was going to, you know, evoke the elephant again. We need several this time. <laughs> Many. We gonna, we, What's look, a herd of mm. elephants? Is it called a herd? I don't even know. We, 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 we're going to have to go buy an elephant farm, apparently, <laughs> and just dispatch them when... I, uh, we're probably going to get in trouble for that. Okay, we're not buying a herd of elephants. Not at all. <laughs> um... I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of speechless on this one too. I think, you know, this, this, this tragedy is still so very recent. And so I think the fact that the Uvalde police are spending so much time and resources to cover their tracks as opposed to really trying to get to the bottom of what happened and what could have been prevented and, what these families and what the community needs now. I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but I think this 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 sort of level of of deception and evasion when you're talking about babies that have been murdered, I think that is kind of a next level conceptualization because I, I also feel like how how are these human beings, i.e. the police, how are they escaping the guilt and the embarrassment of what has happened and what they have been, they've been hired to protect and serve. And they have 19 murdered human beings, blood on their hands. So you can't hire a private law firm or a private investigator to get rid of that. But, but what you, what you can do, you're absolutely right, DR, but, we already know, right, that these people did not do their jobs, right? And so what happens next are the lawsuits. These people are culpable, right? Not just lose your job, but as a family member, I am going to sue you. And that's why they have a law firm, because when it comes out what these people did not do, when it comes out what they were standing around talking about outside, as DeRay said, while the man was inside shooting up the place, while all of this, when all of this stuff comes out, there is going to be clear legal remedies that people can activate that are going to take those people, the individual people down. I don't care what kind of indemnification clauses you have in your contract that will take the police, uh, the whatever, the police department in Uvalde down, that will take the city down, honey. They're, listen, they're going to pay out the nose and I, I hope you got the best private law firm in the world because there's no way that this cannot come out and there ain't no way that somebody is not going to pay for this. Child. I love when Miss Kaya goes clean off. I feel pretty. I'm like, <laughs> I, hate, I, I hate that I'm, I'm employing that trope, but I definitely feel super safe once Miss Kaya says, oh, I hope you got what you need because we coming. I'm like, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I think the only way that I could ever say something substantial about these type of situations is if I take a more, like, if I just like step back and look at the bigger picture. And for me, and I've said this like, um, before in the podcast, it should really scare us that we are socializing and creating um, groups of people who are supposed to protect us, defend us, who are supposed to be somehow a part of the justice system, who are sociopathic, who are evil, 
who are who are doing things that are are in total absence of love, total absence of wisdom, and total absence of empathy. That that is now bec- becoming a precursor in order to participate in any type of justice in America. That should scare us. So I think again, like sometimes when I get super intimate in in the details of of, of these stories, it could just be overwhelming. But I think the bigger thing as Americans and as like this just even as like global citizens, the things that we should really care about is that wow there are people who are switching their switching their brains and switching their consciousness to kind of reject what is human in you and empathetic in you in order to do a in order to do a job and it's not rare you know and we can look at things and not understand how how did Hitler help Nazi Germany and how or how did Hitler convince all these um people in Germany to be Nazis and stuff like that this is how <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's, this, it's the same kind of relinquishing of humanity and soulfulness and love in order to participate in a system. And, it, and, and then the cost is, you know, your soul, you know, and, and the cost is a type of um, human empathy. And it's scary. And it's and it's and it, and it, and it should um, anger people. And it should also make people want to... Uh, hold those people responsible because you're one day going to want to be protected, defended by these people. And they're and, and that that's not going to be their ethos. Their ethos are going to be to protect a, a, a white supremacist system behind them. Not you. Where am I direct? Oh. Boom. Oh, oh. <laughs> you called it. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'll be direct. Boom. <laughs> I love it. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. This week, we welcome author David Dennis Jr. to talk about the book, The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of the Freedom Ride. David co-authored this book with his father, who was a part of the original Freedom Riders, and has continued his activism to this day. This book is truly a tell-all. They really painted the picture for us about the cost of this work for families, about what it means to be a son of the movement, literally, about the lessons learned, a host of things. It's so incredible to read. I can't wait for you to hear David talk about it. Here we go. David Dennis, thanks so much for joining us, Dan Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me, brother. You know, it's good to good to see you on on the computer screen and all that good stuff. I know it's so crazy. You know, we the podcast has been going on since 2016. Had a lot of authors on, a lot of people I know. And what I will say about your book is, you are just a great writer. You really are a good writer. Like I, I opened the beginning. Um, in the story about Baldwin, and I was hooked. I was like, I'm in. I'm <laughs> like, I already like him, so I was like, I'll read it anyway. But uh, I was reminded of just how strong of a writer you are. So shout out to you. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. Uh, do you, you know, you you sort of go into this in the book, but it seems like this story had always been a story you wanted to tell. Was there like a thing that made you like, okay? I'm like, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm actually going to write a book. Because for anybody who hasn't written a book, it's hard. It's not fun. It's not <laughs> sexy. 
So was there like a thing that happened? There wasn't there wasn't really a thing. I mean, like I said, I've been wanting to do it forever. And then it just sort of, you know, the momentum was sort of going towards I was writing more about those those sort of topics, writing about social justice and civil rights and all that stuff. And we were in the middle of this Trump presidency and I've, everybody felt lost. I felt lost. We were looking for answers. And then, you know, dad's getting older, you know, like it was uh, I had this this plan, I think, to be like write a couple like essay books and then like figure out how to write books and then do this one. Obviously, thinking that books were like this thing that you could just do whenever you felt like doing it in my head. And so but, you know, once we got you know, started really, really thinking about how to put this together. I was just like, let's let's sit down and record some some of your stories, and I'll try to write them, and, and we'll we'll see what happens. I love it. Can you let's zoom out and tell us uh, tell us what the book is? Like, give us like a brief synopsis of the book, and then we'll talk about you. And then I have a lot of questions about the book. Okay, yeah. So the movement made us is a book uh, about my dad primarily his time in the civil rights movement, mostly from 1961 to 1964. So when he joined um, in New Orleans all the way through uh, Freedom Summer. But it's written in the first person. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing it, but in first person from his perspective. But also I I'm put in a few letters to my dad in the book just to show what it was like being a kid of the movement, being his son and our relationship and how his time in the movement impacted our relationship decades later. And uh, that's, that's pretty much the book. I mean, I hope that it uh, gives people a little bit of idea of what movement work entailed and does entail. And also, you know, I think it can uh, help from what I've been hearing from folks, especially, which has been wonderful, is that it encouraged a lot of conversations uh, intergenerationally between, you know, kids and parents and grandparents, things like that. Um, so the letter that you wrote on one thirty-seven, uh-huh. uh, can we, let's talk about this letter. This is one of the letters that I, so I loved. So there are a couple of things that caught me off guard. So the first was I started the opening. I'm like, a Baldwin thing. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I did it. And then I didn't know it was first person. So I'm like reading, I'm like, but I'm like, David wasn't, <laughs> David didn't. I, like, the, the, the whole beginning stories with like, you know, the jail arrest and, the old, it was like the woman who was like, I'm fighting for black people. If you're not fighting for black mm. people, I don't want to date you. Like, and then I was like, okay, this is this must be his dad because this cannot be David. But then we get to the letters. Can you walk us through the letter on page 137? I'll tell you why I love it. But um, but I'd love to know, like, what made you think of these letters? Uh, were they real letters that you wrote or did you write them for the book? Why did you include them? Are there a million letters and you only could choose these? Like, how did that happen? So I had been... So I, I originally just wanted to write my dad's stories, right? And that was it. Like for me, I didn't think about how I would insert my voice to the book at all because I didn't think I would because, and this is sort of a, a meta thing that happened in the book is that I just did not feel as though I deserved to be on the same page as Dave Dennis Sr., right? Like he did Freedom Rides and all this stuff. Like why, Like nobody wants to hear from me like talk about my issues in the nineties, you know, like whatever, like nobody cared about that. So, uh, but my, you know, my agent editor, everybody I talked to was like, we need your voice in this. You, you know, have a lot to say about social justice, about, you know, you and your dad's relationship. We need your voice. And so I couldn't figure it out. I could not figure out how to put myself in this book. Cause it was all, and it was all bad chapters. There's probably like 20, there's like probably a whole nother book sitting around somewhere of just bad chapters of me trying to figure out how to write, 
essays and, and contextualize everything and try to make it make sense. And so late, late in the process, manuscript was in, you know, we were late, we were closing in. And I was just like, what if I just wrote them as letters, like in a way that's more intimate, that I don't have to explain, feel like I have to explain to strangers, me and my dad's relationship, you'll just catch on as we, as we write. And so I just wrote and wrote these, these three letters and wrote a letter to the children at the end. And this, this letter in particular that you're talking about was really the crux. Like this was the letter that needed to be written for this book to work is about me and my dad's relationship, about understanding how the PTSD, if you want to call that of the movement, it impacted him as a dad, impacted me as a son, the things that I saw firsthand from him sort of going through these experiences again, because he was in Mississippi going, doing speeches and memorializing folks who had passed and watching him go through that and understanding that he was an imperfect dad and, you know, what it meant, like why he was that way, while also understanding that we can't you know, just make excuses and talk about it. like he's also a, a man and trying to figure out where our relationship was. So this letter is really just was probably the hardest one to write because it was the most personal, the most direct to my dad about our own personal experiences. And um, yes, yeah, so that that's that that's that letter. And that's sort of what how how that part of the book came together. But it was very late in the process and and came with a lot of kicking and screaming on my part because I did not. I did not see myself in my dad's story. Uh, this, these two paragraphs, I, I mean, I loved, you just are a good writer. So like, shout out to you. Um, I think you were apologizing for our relationship, not with excuses, but explanations. I could feel you stressing yourself to say everything. When I realized what was happening, I finally looked up at you. You had tears holding onto the edges of your eyes. I just stared at them waiting. I saw you. I saw one man, not the two men I'd kept separate in my head for so long. Like this section is just so beautiful. And um, I'm interested to, to know what it has been like now that the book is out in the world and the story is no longer just yours and no longer just this thing you talk about your dad with, but uh, but so many people like me get to see this. And, you know, as that, as that paragraph goes on, I saw one man tangled in ag agony from one version of himself that knots itself up in, in the other. I saw the life of Dave Dimmons bleeding into the way dad and husband failed so many people. Maddie, my mother, my sisters, me, yourself, the ripple in the pond and the rocks thrown at Black folks baptized in the lake of American bloodshed. And so I, I'm interested in how it's been received, um, especially by your dad and his friends. And But also one of the things that you write about in this letter in sort of a through line is sort of the survivor's guilt or the shame or the like what it means that he was friends with so many people that didn't make it. And they, you know, it was like luck that essentially allowed him to be alive, um, I'm so curious about those things. So he's been receiving it really well. He was nervous for for a little bit, like through the he would sort of go in and out of nervousness. And I think for a, a while, early in the process, which I think kind of helped him finish it, was that he was like, "Oh, it's my son's like little project that he's doing." You know, like it wasn't until he realized, like you know, we had a a meeting um, with Harper like in February, like the PR, the publicity meeting. Right. And I think that was the first time where he was like, Oh no, this is like a thing. <laughs> like, like this is going to be a, a thing that comes out, but it's been, I mean, it's been great. There have been, I mean, we've done a few tour stops. So his peers have showed up, they've showed him love. And I think it's been good for him to receive that love and to receive that from people who he was there, you know, in those sort of trenches with. And so every day my dad, you know, he still has uh, old man technology. So he, he forwards me 
prays via text message that he gets, but he just copies the text. I so it. I don't know <laughs> who sang it or like who like who it's coming from. So it would just be like a text message that says, wow, what an amazing book. And I'm like, I don't know who this is that said that, but I'm, go- I'm glad. <laughs> so he's he's enjoying that part of it. Um, and I think it has helped with that survivor's guilt for him to see, like, I think for him to see this as continuation of movement work, you know, that he's still doing this and that, that families are healing, that his peers are, you know, remembering new things or re- remembering things for the first time or things they had buried and seeing it on the page. You know, I had some, um, some, somebody call me the other day and, and remind me and tell me his memories of, of hanging out with David Baldwin in New York and the nickname they had for him and all that stuff. And there, so there's just like things that a lot of people are just remembering again through that story. So I think it's helping him to see that this is part of, you know, it gives them sort of a, like, this is why I'm still here type of type of thing. Um, can we go to page 243? Okay. All right. I'm still in like the, er- you know, like it's still in this early stage of having the book in my hand. So I haven't, I haven't reread it again. So I'm like, I've, I've been like scared to open it up. So this is like very, uh, very nerve wracking in a weird way to like, to like look through it for the first time, probably in, in some months. So it's great. I, you really are just a good writer. I mean, it's like, you could write your way out of anything. I'm like, Whew, this is, he's just a good writer. Um, can we go over Could you, could you read, uh, I deliver a eulogy for James Cheney at the bottom of 243. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so it has, okay. So it has, I deliver eulogy. So the, let me talk. So the eulogy chapter is, uh, so my dad gives the eulogy for James Chain. My dad was supposed to be in the car with Goodman Chaney and Schwerner when they were killed, which is the three civil rights workers who were killed in 1964. And my dad has to deliver the eulogy for James Chaney, uh, which is a dear friend of his. And so this chapter is a very sort of stream of consciousness chapter that goes in and out of his thoughts and then into what he actually said um, at the funeral um, at the, during the eulogy. So um, what you'll get is the, what dad said at the eulogy. So I deliver eulogy for James Cheney. And this is what he said. I'm not here to do the traditional thing. Most of us do at such a gathering. And that is to tell of what a great person and individual was and some of the great works that person was involved in. I think we all know because he walked these dusty streets of Meridian before I came here with you and around you. Play with your kids and talk to all of them. And what I want to talk about is really what I re- really grieve about. I don't grieve for Cheney because I feel that he lived a fuller life than many of us will ever live. I feel that he's got his freedom and we are all still fighting for ours. I love it. Dad was on it. Dad was like... And he was 23 at the time he said that, you know? so. And it keeps going. It just... Um, it's interesting. You posted on Instagram one of the videos of him, mm. right? It was Instagram you posted? Yeah. And it's so it was so interesting to have read the book and then see that because I could see what you write about in the book, like the rage and the fury and the like anger, right? Mm-hmm. Just the like almost can't even talk because you're so pissed. Right, yeah. Um, and then to see what that becomes later in life. How do you think he's processed the guilt or the or the shame or like, how has that, how have you seen that grow over time or how did that impact you as a kid of him or how has that changed you as a dad? Well, it, it, the grief and the, the survivor's guilt, I mean, it haunted him through, through most of my, my life, most of my childhood. I mean, you, when you, you know, when dad got on the, got on the freedom ride at the age of, of 20 years old, uh, he thought he was going to die and sort of live the rest of his life 
with the assumption that he was going to die young. Uh, and then when you make it on the other side of that movement work, when you sort of have to go live a, a regular, quote unquote, regular life, what do you do? Like, how do you go about planning things when you spent these formative years of your life? Sure, you were going to die. Right. And every morning thinking this this is going to be your last morning and knowing that somebody like your your dear friend, Megger Evers, is killed outside of his home like this is at your doorstep. Right. And so he has to. You know, you go through the rest of your life not really planning for the future, not really thinking about, you know, generational things. You just sort of live for the moment. And it's almost like an arrested development that happened. So I I, I saw that firsthand. I saw him uh, in these stages of his life where he sort of wasn't planning for the future or thinking about consequences and things like that. And it, it, you know, for me, early in my in life and and before the book, I thought that, like, if you were going to be in the movement, like you can't be a good parent. Like you, like there's movement work and good, being a good parent was just like juxtaposed. Like you cannot be both of those things. You had to be one or the other. Uh, but through the book and through just life, I've sort of learned that, you know, parenting and, and being good to your family is part of movement work as an extension of movement work. Like that was what one of the central tenets of what they were doing is, is strengthening families and making sure that parents can, be good parents. So instead of seeing those as diametrically opposed to each other, I'm seeing them as sort of a, a collaborative one in the same type of work, which has impacted me, uh, you know, which is, I think made me a better parent and allowed me to sort of couch my work in, in family. How does your mother uh, weave into the story, even if she is not written throughout it? How is she, where, where is she in this narrative? So my mom is, I mean, she's central to it. I mean, this, this book, this stuff does not happen without my, my mom sort of keeping, keeping me together (laughs) through the, through this time while, while me and my dad had this off and on sort of frayed relationship, you know, she was the one and, um, you know, similar to, to my, my sister's mother, to, to Maddie, who's written about in the book, like these are the people who kept dad alive as much as he you know as as long as he he's been alive and the people that had to hold the family down while he was going through what he was going through and tried tried their best to do it and so she's you know uh, a you know major part of of all of this like this we don't get to the point of where we are to write this book if my mother is not um you know making sure that that that's possible how how does your dad think about today? So it was so interesting. You know, this is one of those books that I wish I had read in 2014, 15, frankly, because I feel like so much of the the civil rights movement narrative is King and Fannie Lou Hamer and da da da. And we don't actually tell the story of what it's like to have a community of activists and a community of organizers who all play a big role. Like we just haven't told those stories. And that's actually what I think this book does so well is that it reminds us that none of the people that we've learned about for so long can do any of this work alone, that it's a lot of people that do this work. Um, And he has lived through so much. It's like Mm -hmm. not only that time, but I've I've lived through two mass protests and I'm, you know, I'm a child, I feel like. So how does he think about this moment and, and has that helped him think through his own past or his, his work? So dad is, 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 uh, an optimist. He's very optimistic about, about where we are now. I mean, he's watched, you know, one of the, I mean, the, obviously George Floyd protest, largest protest in American history in terms of amount of people and, and things like that. So he's finding a lot of hope in that. I think he's, 
also understanding and has preached sort of this need of his generation to be a conduit and sort of be that guide and be that help to to the current generation. I don't think like what we see in the in the book and, and through that movement stuff is that this work is generational even at as it's going on. You have elders, you have kids, you have people working in tandem and, and sometimes I think he feels like for whatever reason, there is a gap generationally where, you know, a lot of the older folks say, well, the kids need to figure that out when that's never been in, in movement tradition. So I think he he would like for that to happen, but I think he's he's tremendously optimistic about the fact. I mean, how could you not be thinking about what they went through in Mississippi and the folks who were there, like sharecroppers and people who should have been nothing, right? The way that America treats folks and, and change, like, change legislation <laughs> in this country, create a democracy in America in a way that nobody thought was possible. So how can you not be optimistic of the continuance of, of that movement? You know, I would say this is a plug, um, and I'm going to ask you about the New York Times essay about um, about your dad and about the veteran status, but an article that I would love to see you write would be a, like, 10 lessons from dad, uh-huh. just like an organizer's playbook. You know, I think about I think about all the things he must have learned from a skill perspective mm-hmm. to, like, send the freedom rider. Like, that. that is, like, such a wild thing to think about, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, all those just, like, skills. Like, forget the stories, but, like, like how did you decide who you thought was going to break down or who wasn't? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you toughen up the people when they were nervous? Like, how did you debrief when it didn't go well? Like, all those things that, like... We actually just don't have a lot of like usable stuff from that generation. We have a lot of speeches and like theory. We don't have a lot of like conversations with the tacticians. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, you know, we wanted to. I was sort of hesitant to be because because the movements are, are obviously similar, but they're not, you know, they're not the same movement. So I didn't want to do like civil rights veteran tells kids how to how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like old man yells at at whatever. And and I was I was felt like there might be some resistance to, to doing that. But what we do is is sort of show the practical things that they did. I mean like my favorite probably my favorite organizational story is the way that they disrupted the state fair in Shreveport, you know, which was just these ingenious ideas from these kids to like weaponize white fear against itself. Uh, and I think like that type of stuff that's in there, like those type of stories are, you know, can be some sort of a loose framework of, of, of stuff for folks to follow. Uh, I think, you know, the only time I, th- I felt like we really sort of hammered down, like this is what you should do is the idea of like when you go into a city, figure out who's there and figure out what's actually happening before trying to like, this is my my I'm I'm here now, like. I'm taking over, you know, like th- I think that was probably as close as we got to like, this is what they did. And this, this can um, cross, you know, this is like a timeless tactic to use, but I didn't want to, you know, he didn't really feel comfortable with that. I didn't really feel comfortable with that to be like, you know, this is what we did. This is what you should do type of thing. But if you can glean, glean what you can from it and then, and then it should hopefully be helpful. Yeah, no, there's a lot to glean. A lot of great stories from the beginning. I'm like, I, you really are just a good writer. Like that is true outside of me thinking you're a good person. I'm saying that I would love as a as a companion to the book, okay. not as a replacement to the book. Right. Um, like uh, I could see him doing like a, here's what I learned. Less right. of a like, here's what you should do. But like here, like some, 
Because I have to imagine there are a million random things you didn't write about. Right, yeah, like, I mean, yeah. you wrote a book, you wrote stories, right? There are all these things that like were not story that like, I don't know. So that's my plug, my selfish plug okay. as an organizer. Right. Like I would love <laughs> to hear, it's so interesting because they, there is something about when you, and you know this because you wrote the story, there's something about the way you make decisions when you think you're going to die that's very different mm-hmm. than when you're like, you know, I'm going to buy a house and get rich. Right. Like it's just a whole different uh, decision structure. And I think about... He just was in crazy. I read these stories and I'm like, oh my God, I want to know like how you debrief that con like that was crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. What was the conversation y'all had after that? Like, right. how did you you just saw all these people die? Like, what did y'all what did you tell people as like one of the leaders to get them to go back outside? Right. I am fascinated. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And it's those sort of things that I'm like, um, as the addendum, as your as one of the essays. All right, gotcha. Um I wanted to ask about, so you wrote in the New York Times, civil rights activists fought for America's democracy. They should be honored as veterans. Um, Again, another well-written essay. You really are just, I mean, I know I've known you're a good writer, but it's so cool to like see it, like have to prepare for it to talk to you. But I'm like, this nigga is a writer. He is a writer. Um, (laughs) And we we gotta tell folks, we gotta let folks know that we, we went to summer camp together in high school. Like, I don't know if people, people don't know that. We did go to summer camp together. I've known Deray for like 20 what, 20 years or so when we were When we were babies. kids. Um, but I didn't know you were a writer back then, but you're like a writer's writer. It's like, <laughs> this man is good. Um, can you tell, like, why? what made you, how did you get to this essay? Like, this idea of um, civil rights activists being honored as veterans, like, w- what led you to be like, you know, I, I believe this? Well, the book, the book is a war, it's a war book. It's written as as to me thinking about the movement as as war because of what you know for, well first of all just just structurally i'd originally wanted to do it like the things they carried which is a book i read in high school which i was like this this can kind of um be a way to write these short stories about my dad's life and the movement but i what i didn't under, what i didn't know at the time is that so much stuff happened like consecutively that there was no need for a short story because it'd be like Thursday, this crazy thing happened and Friday, something equally as wild happened. So there was no need to break the stories up. But so I was thinking about it as a war story in that way. And then when you really get into the logistics of what these folks went through with the bombings, um, assassinations, espionage, like when I think about what they did to Goodman, Cheney and Schwerner, that to me is like a military a military operation to assassinate three people right like to burn down a church to like smoke them out of where they are to have them there to have spies to tell you where they are to hide them you know kill them to hide the bodies and then to use like government misinformation to distract everybody from what actually happened like that is textbook military strategy and Thinking about that, think about the people who I wrote about in the story, thinking about how so many of them died without money and some of them suffer from PTSD and suffer from, you know, physical, still physical ailments from the beatings and things like that at the time. Like this was a war. They fought a war to create democracy, which is what I'd heard that America fights wars for. Right. And they should be honored as veterans the same way that veterans of war get namely VA benefits. Like I don't necessarily care. Like I, well, I do care, but I'm not necessarily honor them on veterans day, make a coin, do all that, whatever BS, like give them the things that you give veterans of, 
of war in the VA. You give them the health care, uh, make it easier for them to buy home, make it easier for them to create generational wealth. Like these are the things that they should have based on the fact that they saved the country. They fought a war and saved the country. They weren't even trying to fight a war. They were trying to vote and America, you know, wage war against them and they won. And there is a there was a democracy in place because of this. Boom. I love it. I'm sold. Um, <laughs> well, you're the you're the you're the movement. You're the movement. Actually, I write. I don't do. I don't know. I do none of this. None of this stuff. Right. So I'm 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 I write and put it in the air. This for for you and your folks to 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 work out the rest. But the storytelling matters so much. It's like you know. I I think about um I think about all the things we didn't have in 2014, and and a book like this was one of the things we just didn't have. We didn't. We had been told all these stories of like the person who swooped in and saved it, like that was sort of the narrative. But Ferguson was this incredible thing where like people self-organized and mm-hmm. da, 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 da. like, you know, it was, it was a story about a lot of people coming together to change things. And in reading this book, I was like, this, this is the first, I get a lot of movement stuff. I see a lot of movement videos, but this is the first thing that I read. And I was like, this is honest. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, this is honest. There's like a, there's just like an honesty to this that I think is very, um, real, independent of it being well-written. But there are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that's stuck with you? I think, I mean, just telling the truth. Like, that's just like, tell the truth and let the pieces fall into place. I mean, that's just sort of, you know, I heard some of my, my, my both my parents uh, taught me was that like, if you just tell the truth, like that's everything else will work its way, you know, to where you need it to be. Boom. And then another question uh, that we ask everybody is, um, what do you say to people whose hope is challenged in moments like this, right? People who have read your book, read mine, read our friends' books, they voted, they testified, they emailed, they called, and the world has not changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Well, I'll say what, what you know, what the goal, one of the goals was in this book is that there is, I think so often people feel a barrier to entry into movement work, right? And what I would say is that if you're doing something, you're doing something, you know, like if you do one, like I think so often we feel as though if we're not, you know, going to jail or, you know, almost being killed or whatever, then we're not doing anything. And the idea here is that like, if you just do something, somebody else will do something. Maybe you'll do like a two things and then maybe like you'll do like a, a, a third thing. Right. Or like, and then the next thing, you know, you're embedded in this work or you don't, or you just do like two things, you know, and that's it. And you're good. (laughs) You know, like, I think that what, if everybody just, just tries one thing, then we'll just sort of my hope and and my like optimistic belief is that we'll all just sort of end up where we're supposed to be within the larger framework of, of, of movement work. But just, if you're doing something, you're doing something and don't be so hard on yourself to feel as though you're not, um, you know, you're not Martin Luther King or you haven't changed the world by yourself because that's impossible. Just if you do something, we'll all find our place. Boom. I have another question, though. Uh, this is about you as a writer. OK. What um, how, how I'm in. This is like I'm curious is how did you how did this book stretch, test, challenge, maybe none of those refine? What did it do to you as a writer? I think about, you know, I. I obviously have known you since we were kids, but as an adult, I knew that you like, I, I remember when you wrote on the blogs and now you write in places like the New York times, 
but those are essays, right? Those are not, this is a, a writing a book is, feels like a much bigger thing to do. What was that like as a writer? Uh, so if I had known what kind of writing I'd be doing for this, I probably would have never done this book. Cause it was like, the, like I, I wrote my first early drafts were very journalistic, right? Were very like, I did this and then I did this. And then this is what they said. And then, you know, like, and, and it told, and it, my dad's stories are riveting stories, but my agent was really pushing me in the proposal stage to be like, no, you need to write this novelistic, you know, write it as if put people there, write it as if you're writing fiction, obviously not making stuff up, but like writing it as if you're, you're writing fiction, which the only problem was I hadn't written fiction since I was like 15 years old. Right. I'd been, I hadn't even been, I'd been, <laughs> had been reading fiction for style and form since I was 15 years old. Like I've been reading all nonfiction and memoirs and journal and, you know, journalistic books thinking, cause that's what I'm going to do. And so I had to learn, I had to take myself through like fiction, literature, you know, literature 101, black literature 101. I was like reading Toni Morrison over again and like reading, Invi- I was like, the first, I was like, I should read, I should go back and read Invisible Man. Cause that's like what you do when you're starting to write. So I was like reading Invisible Man, like reading these books that like showed me how to write fiction. Like I had to learn essentially from scratch how to write fiction to create the type of, you know, type of emotional embedded story that you get here that I tried to do. So that was like the hardest thing for me to figure out was like, I, how do I write this as if it is a genre that I have not written seriously ever in my life? And then on the other hand, these essay, these quote unquote essays, these things in my voice, I was like, it's going to be a piece of cake. I write essays all the time. Like I could do that. I'll do that, whatever. And I just could not get it. I couldn't get it partly because I'm not, you know, unfortunately because of the way that, um, you know, white supremacists react to your work, I've become extremely private in my writing in a way that I hadn't been um, previously. So to be more open and to be more, um, you know, forthcoming and write about this challenging stuff meant that those were really more difficult than anything. So this book was like a whole new corner of my brain and corner of my writing that I hadn't even come close to doing uh, ever before. And is there, a, I know those two questions are normally what we ask at the end, but I have all these other questions. Uh, is there is there a part of the book that you are particularly proud of? You're like, you know what? I did that. <laughs> um, and you know what? I, I really... I really like the eulogy chapter um, because that was the one that I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to, how to write that. And dad obviously doesn't remember much of that. And it was like, there's not a lot of action in there. It's just him standing and talking. I didn't want to just reprint the speech. So just getting into this like stream of consciousness, writing about the eulogy, writing about what's going on in his head. Like I was extremely proud of that. Um, And yeah, I, I was mostly mostly proud of that. I mean, I'm 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 in generally just proud that it's done. <laughs> you know, like proud that it got done and that people <laughs> like it, and that we've gotten so much so much praise for it. So you know, so far, so that that part is 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 good to me. And I'm and I'm happy my dad likes it. Like to be honest, like I, that was obviously the most important thing is that he feels well represented in the book. And 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 so yeah, those 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 things are proud of. You're so funny. You've always been so chill. You're so even. <laughs> Um, tell people where they can stay in touch with what you're doing. Twitter, uh, David D, uh, TSS is where I'm at on, on Twitter and Instagram. So you can follow me there. Uh, those are the things I'm, 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 where you'll see my writing and, 
and all that stuff posted on posted on the internet. So follow me there. Boom. Um, remind us the title of the book. Give us another shout out to go buy it and we'll be on our way. Uh, the Movement Made Us, Father, Son, and Legacy in the, of a Freedom Ride. Uh, it's out wherever books are sold, uh, preferably indie bookstores, Black-owned bookstores. Uh, if you're in the South, definitely go indie. We were independent bestseller in the South which meant a ton to me because like that's how, where this book is, is focused and um, the grassroots aspect of it is extremely important to me. Um, so yeah, that's where you go. Catch the movement made us. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pie. Can't wait to have you back and always an honor to be in conversation. Same to you, brother. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy.